Welcome to the DFL Before DNF podcast. I'm excited to have Bart here with me today. I, um, you know, as so much of ultra running lives on Instagram, um, I've been seeing his posts for a while. Uh, I think in this phase of of training, where I'm, I'm just trying to build volume, I think um, with my read on Bart being a very encouraging type person, I think that's just where I'm at right now uh, of needing that. Uh, when you get to like, you know, where am I at now? About six to seven weeks out, and it's just you know week in and week out of of going for big volume and never feeling like you have enough. I feel like just the the uh, ultra trail running gods are are in my favor today by getting to talk to you. And I also mentioned this on a podcast release today with a guy named Colby Sharp. Uh, just these encouraging type people. I, I think I have friends like that. But one of the things that I've gained from this podcast and really been loving is getting to talk to people that are encouraging, just like you, Bart. So welcome. Thanks. Thanks for joining me today. Hey, thanks so much. Yeah. And for me, social media, it can be such a detrimental tool in life, Yeah, but it can also be an amazing tool. And so like two years ago, I figured if I'm going to be on this, uh-huh. I'm going to spread positivity. If I can't do that, then it's useless to me. So yeah, that's been the premise behind why I've been on social media for sure. Yeah. You so clearly, uh, when you make a post, it just feels like your goal is to either inspire or encourage for sure. Yeah. The world needs more people like you. I like it. (laughs) Well, thanks for having me on. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about you as a person. You're down in American Fork, Utah. I'm in downtown Salt Lake. So we're actually probably could have made this happen in person, but you know, you're, we're relatively close, but uh, tell me a little about where you are and what you're up to. So I'm a farm boy, by birth, I was born up in Oak. Uh, well, I was born in Salt Lake City, but we moved to Oakley, Utah, which is oh nice a farm town. Uh, at the time, there was about seven hundred people in the town. Grew up. Home. Oh, I love Oakley. It was so yeah. beautiful. I uh, grew up. What's what sort of farming? Uh, we just had like a hobby farm with some cattle and sheep and chickens and things like that. Mainly, my parents were probably trying to teach us the value of hard work and keep us busy. But nice. We did haul hay. It was just the summer dream type life swimming in creeks and just messing around up in the country. It was, it was definitely a a dream. Amazing childhood. That's cool. But, um, you, you mentioned my Instagram, my Instagram handle is barely running. And a lot of people get confused because (laughs) my real name is Bart but I go by bear to a lot of people. And okay. sometimes that confuses people. There's two reasons why I received that nickname. One, growing up, I've always had a passion for adventure. And yeah, I was obsessed with Bear Grylls. And no oh, matter really, I would just watch that show religiously. And it, yeah, I love it. It didn't matter what we were doing. If we were just going on a family friendly hike. I couldn't just take the regular trail. I'd have to find some rock to climb over and make it more adventurous. So that was part of the reasoning behind it. But the second one comes with a little bit of a story. Mm -hmm. So back in the day, I was in the scouting program. I I achieved my Eagle Scout. But during that process, we went on multiple camping trips. And you learn a lot as a scout. You learn how to build fires, but you also learn how to uh, prank people. So... (laughs) one time out on a a scouting trip, some kid taught us how to build what we called a bear call. It's essentially a number, like a big uh, bolt can. And you'd puncture a hole in the bottom of it, put a shoelace through, tie a knot so the shoelace can come back out. You get the end of the shoelace wet and you pull it and it makes this echoing sound out of the the can. So it sounds like a bear. So, and the, and the goal is to get a bear to come closer to you. No, the goal is to make other people think that that sound is a bear. Oh, oh it's the prank. Okay. Tracking with you. Okay. So anyway, we did that scared some scouts. So I thought this is, <laughs> this is brilliant. And a couple of weeks later, we were doing a family reunion up at my parents' cabin up in Woodland, uh-huh. Utah. We had extended family there. There wasn't enough room in the cabin to fit everyone. So there's some campers, some people had set up tents, but 
that night we were sitting around a campfire roasting marshmallows and my dad was a big prankster and so he was in on it too he had printed out these signs that like warning bears been in the area <clears throat> anyway <laughs> so we warned people hey just be careful watch your kids stay close to the camp because there's a bear in the area so everyone's already on edge right yeah <laughs> that night we're roasting marshmallows and my dad nudges me like all right go so me and my brother run off into the bushes <laughs> with the bear call and we're sitting in this big willow bush maybe like 25 30 feet away and i'm pulling it and boom, boom, and my dad is just like whoa did you hear that everyone just freaks out and starts scattering people are like running into each other they're like pushing people over just to get into uh, the cabin for safety so all of this is happening and we're laughing and my uncle is looking at my dad because my other siblings are out there kind of laughing he's like get the kids in the cabin why aren't you why are you laughing? And so my dad's like, okay, to play along, takes the kids in the cabin. Well, that prank freak freaked everyone out except for my big, massive uncle, who's a Vietnam veteran. Uh-oh. <laughs> he goes to <laughs> the back of his truck, picks up this four-by-four yeah. block of wood, runs over to the willow bush where we are, chucks, oh, it my in, goodness. chucks it into the bush. All I remember hearing is crashing branches above my head and this four by four block just knocks me in the skull. <laughs> I fall out of the bush, blood running down my face. Oh my gosh. And he grabs me and he's like, the bear got Bart. So he thought <laughs> the bear like had attacked me. So he pulls me into the cabin thinking he's this hero <laughs> only to find out that he got duped and that we were making that noise. But that uh, has been a family story That's, for a long how old time. Were you? I think I was about 14. Okay. And yeah, that really stuck. And it's like, <laughs> that helps solidify the name bear. So yeah. just a little. Did you ever go snipe hunting? Oh yeah. Many okay. times. I mean, that, that's like my, my snipe hunting story when I was, I was the baby of the family and, uh, an, an easy target. Cause I'm, you know, I'm afraid of the dark <laughs> and everything. And we had, my family had some land in central Texas outside of a town called cross plains. And, it was, the, it was the same thing. Like I, so, you know, we're chasing these fictitious snipe around. My brother has it all queued up and then we go into the bushes and there was another guy that wasn't totally aware of what a snipe was. And all of a sudden we hear a shotgun. Oh, like, wow. and you're like, Oh my God, they're not real. <laughs> my brother jumps out, like pushes them back. Uh, nothing like, you know, country, country boy uh, pranks on one another. But when the shotgun comes out, it's time to, let everybody know what's going on for sure. Wow. That's yeah, crazy. I love it. So, uh, and what do you, what do you do in American fork? What keeps you busy? Obviously your training does for, for these big efforts that you do, but what else are you doing down there? Yeah, just a lot of training down here. I do some coaching as well for people, okay. whether they're trying to run their first half marathon or their first hundred miler, 200 miler deal with a lot of coaching. I'm also, uh, the co-founder of a business called the go crazy and okay. um, we have a podcast called the Go Crazy Podcast. Nice. Essentially, we coach people, and that's the platform through which I coach. And okay, we basically help people relate that have been called crazy for doing extreme things to mm. like go build and progress in their own lives, and they fail that's at a place. Cool. We yeah. we've kind of built a tribe where they can come and and realize that they're not crazy and being called crazy actually is a compliment because yeah. it shows that you're on the right path, that you're not the norm, that you're, <laughs> you're out there doing awesome things and, and growing and progressing in life. And so that's been a, a huge uh, blessing in my life to be able to see people grow and progress who originally yeah. suppressed these feelings of wanting to go out mm. there and break through the norm. So that's, yeah, I love it. Are you are you taking clients right now? How how's your kind of workload on that? Yeah, um, I, I'm going to have a couple openings here in March. We okay. I have multiple people um, that will be completing their first hundred milers this this March, and they'll somewhat mm -hmm. graduate from the program. And some of them we keep nice. on, but yeah, we um, also maintain. And I have a coaching program with uh, that's like a maintenance program where we still keep in touch, but it's less intense. Than it is okay. So you, your angle on coaching essentially is is there's there's like a center of the target. You're going for something, and we're going to help you do that thing. 
not just sort of like an ongoing, we have, we're all, always coaching. You're, you're getting people to goals. We, we have both, but typically okay. it's that first program where I'll either create a plan because there's some independent people where I'll create a plan and just say, here it is. And they're very self-driven and they go with it. And the second option is I'll create a plan. It's a month to month coaching program and they'll work with me closely on uh, weekly calls and okay. I'll walk them through uh, fueling strategies, uh, uh, injury prevention, the mileage they should be putting in for their races, the vert, and just yeah. some other things. Maybe I'll talk about later in yeah. the, the podcast with some preparation yeah. for races. You know, I'd be curious your take. Uh, I, don't, I don't, you're probably familiar with Camille Heron. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I follow her stuff and uh, obviously her as a runner, phenomenal runner. Uh, very accomplished. The, she had the 48 hour distance record. I think someone just beat it by like five, I don't know, half a mile or something like that. But she has this approach to training that I've just been asking, you know, professionals like you about, she's no longer doing the long run and she's only doing, she said she's maxing out at two hours. Her longest runs are going to be two hours regardless of distance. Now she's super fast. So she's going to knock out, you know, maybe 14 to 15 miles in that time. But, um, what do you know about that? I mean, is it, is it, is that runner to runner or do you think she's just got like a unique thing going on? So I think there's some wisdom in it, but I think it's hard to approach somebody coaching wise, just a cookie cutter Mm -hmm. approach. It's hard to just put a blanket on that because she's been running for a long time. Right. And she knows herself. She's built confidence. She knows that she can go those long distances. So at that point, it becomes a time on feet type of mm-hmm. drill. Yeah. But for somebody who's never done it, let's say a 50 miler. And mm-hmm. if they're going to go out and only do these two hour runs, they never are going to realize what happens like six hours into that run. And they don't know how to fuel at that point. They don't know how Mm. to um, prevent blisters. They don't know what it's, what's going to happen with their gear. And so there's so much wisdom in it. And something I'll probably touch on later is I will never approach an ultra, even with uh, where I am at in my running career, I will not approach a big ultra such as a hundred miler or anything bigger without doing a training run that goes through the night. So mm. I will start at 10 PM and I'll run till 4 AM. And I've been through the night on multiple races, but it's, it's funny how it's somewhat like riding a bike, but hmm. you hit a confidence level when you go in and do these things such as going through the night. Yeah. So then when I go through a race a month later and I go through the night, it's like, cool. I just did that. Not a big deal. Hmm. I'm I'm used to this. I'm prepared for it. So there is also wisdom in somebody hitting those landmarks in their training prior to to race. And it's not as if, if you're doing a 50 miler, you don't have to go do a 50 mile training run. Sure. But for your first one, you might want to go hit 30 miles just to know that you've hit this major landmark. And you're not yeah. going to have a shocker when you've only been doing these two hour runs and maybe you're getting 12 miles in during that two hour run. So that's where I stand with it is for a that's seasoned cool. runner. Yeah. I think her approach could, I, I actually follow her approach a lot with yeah. my training, but for okay. somebody coming in new, I think that that's a recipe for a DNF for sure. That's a great point that she's probably faced everything at this point that she's going to face. She has a toolbox. She has probably an amazing toolbox of how to handle those things. And so if she doesn't need to, like you say, encounter them to strategize around them, uh, to know what she's going to do in that situation. That's an interesting thought. Yeah. Cause I'm still at the point where I need to feel the blister bleeding, feel it hurting and then feel that pain go away to know that I can push through it. So on my race effort, you know, I, I, if that I encounter that, I've got a new tool in my toolbox. For sure. Yeah. So tell me about you as a runner then. Are you, uh, I mean, I've seen, you know, you, you finished Cocodona 250, uh, plenty of hundred milers. Where did all this, where did it start for you? How did the crazy get in your head? Well, I played a lot of sports in high school and I will say probably like many of us during that point, I hated running. Like I can recall a time where 
during soccer practice. I was a junior in high school and it was the Tuesday and I knew we had our long two mile run (laughs) before practice to warm up. And I was just not feeling it that day at school. School gets out, we're getting dressed in our uniforms and everyone takes off. And there was this two mile loop around what was called the grist mill. And I remember running out to the parking lot with my truck keys in my hand and I just uh, was hiding in my truck and I was like, huh, maybe some of my friends on the team don't want to run this as well. So I fire up the truck, <laughs> start driving around the grist mill. I could, two or three of them jump in the back of the truck. We haul back and get back to the school and just hung out and chatted in the truck until the rest of the team came, jumped out. And it was so stupid of me to do, but I'm looking back and I'm like, I hated running. Like I did anything mm-hmm. I could to get out of anything. it. Yeah. Which is stupid because now I'm paying hundreds and hundreds of dollars to get into a, an event. <laughs> and it's yeah. just so foolish when I look back at it. But yeah. Um, later on in life, I uh, didn't have a lot of direction. I've dealt with some um, anxiety in my life, like many other people. Sure. I tried medications that just made me feel completely numb. So I started to do research and found that I wasn't probably as physically active and my diet wasn't as good as it should be. And so I decided. How long ago was that? That was probably like 18 years ago. Oh, okay. A long time ago. And so I just figured, you know what, I'm not going to live like like this. I didn't want to feel numb with the medications that I had tried, but I also Mm -hmm. couldn't live life in the state that I was naturally in. And so I decided... Um, I got an invitation from one of my friends to go do a triathlon. And I was like, huh, I swam in high school. I know how to ride mm-hmm. a bike. I could probably figure <laughs> out running. So he yeah. invited me down and it was Kanab, Utah triathlon. Cool. It was just oh, great area. Uh, this entry level triathlon. I, I think I did the sprint um, distance one that they separated the pool lanes to accommodate all the racers. So they're like these skinny pool lanes with these extra uh, pole lines in it. And we're just running into each other. I had a Walmart bike that was just like rusty. The chain was bad. And, and going down there the night before we'd been told that uh, this friend, he knew somebody that was going to let us stay at their house. So we got done with, uh, I was in college at the time. I got done with school we drove down to Kanab, got there late, maybe 11 p.m., knock on the door, nobody answers. And we waited a little bit, knocked on the door, nobody answered. We're like, great, these people aren't even here. So we went and drove over to a church parking lot, parked in there, went and laid out on the grass. We didn't even have sleeping bags or anything because we were <laughs> expecting to sleep in somebody else's bed. We tried to fall asleep, 6 a.m., sprinklers come on. We're just soaked and we're just like, this is like a nightmare. So we get in the car, we share like this one muffin that he had that was like a banana nut muffin. We go swim. I ride my Walmart bike. I get blisters from the three mile run. I get done and I'm like, I'm never doing this thing again. And he was like, yeah, that was horrible. So it almost pushed me away because I was like, I'm not an athlete. Why am I doing this? Yeah. But in order to like combat the anxiety that I was talking about earlier, I decided I was going to go and try to do a one mile day. So I'd run around our uh, student housing complex and I couldn't even make it a full mile around and without having to walk. Mm-hmm. And I just did that consistently until um, soon after a couple of weeks, I was able to run the whole mile and I just kind of stayed at that level. Hmm. But there was like a moment where something really clicked and I just kind of had a come to Jesus moment of what am I going to do with my life? Who am I? I just feel so blah and like there's no direction. So I decided, you know what? I'm going to go do something crazy. I've been running a mile a day. I'm going to go do a marathon. So (laughs) yeah, you're ready. (laughs) I just decided (laughs) I'm doing it. So I, I I signed up for a, a road marathon. It was a Utah Valley marathon. Mm-hmm. And I started to train, and of course, I started to put in more miles. But I think I probably only got up to about ten miles max. Went okay. out on race day, completed it, and I remember uh, finishing the race and thinking, wow. "Man, okay, that was hard." But it was this spark in hmm. what I envisioned my potential could be. So wow. after doing that, I decided, well, 
what's the next rung in the ladder up? And I'm like, uh, I've done a tri- one triathlon before. Maybe I'll do a, an Ironman. Mm-hmm. So I signed up for the St. George 70.3, so the half Ironman. Worked hard for it. Got a new bike, so I wasn't riding some cheap Walmart bike. Mm-hmm. and was able to complete it successfully. And I thought, wow, okay, I'm starting to feel more fit. I'm feeling more confident. So the next rung in the ladder was a full Ironman. So I signed up for Santa Rosa, California, full Ironman. Cool. I spent one year training for that, just swimming like three, four days a week, running yeah. like four days a week, biking like three days a week. And I started to build that confidence and, and build those skills within me. And after mm-hmm. that year, I successfully completed that Ironman. And I look back on it and laugh because my fueling strategy is so insane. I don't know what I was thinking, but I had a can of SpaghettiOs at the halfway point. I just cracked it open. <laughs> and Calorie dense, I assume. Yeah. And it, I, you look back and it's like, oh, I guess I had sugars and salts and all that sort of stuff and <laughs> carbs. But I, I remember this guy looking at me at, at the halfway point. And I'm just like downing this cold can of SpaghettiOs. And I hate SpaghettiOs. I don't even know why I chose that. But he, uh, it's better. He was just like, man, you're insane. What are you doing? And he was struggling. And I was like, just keep going, man, because we'd been leapfrogging each other during the race. And he's like, that is sounds so gross right now. And so anyway, <laughs> I finished the bike. He comes rolling in like t- 10 minutes later as I'm like changing into my running stuff. And I cracked open another can of SpaghettiOs because that was my fuel strategy. Again, who knows why? <laughs> and you live, you learn. But um, he comes in and I'm like, dude, good job. You made it. I, I didn't think you're going to make it through the bike. And he's like, oh, I don't know if I'm going on the run. And then he looks down. He's like can I have the rest of that can? And I'm like, sure. So he grabs the rest of the can, just starts like drinking this thing. I go out on the run. I finish it. I'm at the finish line with like family and friends. And uh, all of a sudden this guy comes across and he just like comes up and hugs me. And I'm like, bro, you made it. Good job. And he's like, I don't know what was in those SpaghettiOs, but man, it gave (laughs) me this jolt. And I was like, oh gosh, but I've never used it as a uh, fueling source since, but it was never since disgusting I, looking back on it and i think that's the interesting part about ultra running is you look back on it and and you're like what was i wearing like why right. did i eat that and it, just yeah. embrace it you got to start somewhere and so people out there listening that are like i don't know if i'll ever be able to run a 50 or 100 just just start like take some steps towards that like don't worry about you don't have enough money or you don't have getting it right. the skills yeah. like you're going to live and learn like that. It's all a growth process. You're not, if you wait until you're ready for it, you're never going to be ready for it. So just jump in and that's where the growth and the learning happens is in the doing. So anyway, fast forward, I was like, okay, I've made it. I've done the, the highest level of endurance sport. I did a full Ironman and I ended up hurting my back in CrossFit and mm-hmm. thought I, I went into like a deep, dark place because I thought I'd ruined my career in sports mm-hmm. at that point because I was walking around with a cane. This was about a year after, maybe two years after the Ironman, I guess. And I couldn't even take my kid trick-or-treating that year without like walking around with a cane. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't go up and down the stairs. So like I slept downstairs in our main floor for a little bit. And it was just oh, this... Man dark moment of like, what did I do to myself? And I had bulged a disc, but it just wasn't uh, improving. So as I was in the Ironman scene, prior to that, uh, there was a a local guy, James Lawrence, Iron Cowboy. He had been doing an endurance feat called the 50-50-50, where he did 54 Ironmans in 50 different states in 50 days. And while that was happening, I was like so inspired by it that I thought, I'm going to leave my job. And I'm going to go follow this guy just like a roadie hippie and be like, I'm, I'm coming along. Wow. But I didn't. And okay. I regretted like not like going out and mm-hmm. doing part of it. And so as I was there dealing with my injury, I got on Instagram and James had posted something and it was a new challenge he was going to do. It was called the Conquer 100, where he was going to do 100 full Ironmans in 100 consecutive days. But he was going to do it all here locally. 
So okay. I thought, you know what? If he's doing it here in our backyard, I'm going to be there. So day one, show up, cold turkey, haven't swam for two years or more. I go, get in the pool, hurt back, swim 2.4 miles. Next Whoa. day, I'm back, 2.4 miles. And I'm like, I can, can swim. Can we pause real quick on the 2.4 miles? I'm not a swimmer. I have a friend who's a big swimmer. What would you equate 2.4 miles to in the pool in terms of running? I know that those are two totally different things, but we as runners hear 2.4 miles and think, yeah, that's, that's kind of far, but that's a, that's really far for swimming, right? Yeah, I guess that equate to like a 15, 16 mile run. Yeah, so that's no simple task. Like you had a hurt back and you jumped in and, and did the equivalent of a 16 mile run. Yeah, so um, I did that day three. I'm back again and I'm just feeling this confidence and it, like my, I think part of my back was maybe mental. Like it was hurting obviously physically, but as I got in there, it was just like changing me day three. Mm. I go run. I mean, I go swim and that night I'm like, he's doing the marathon. I show up day three. I go run a full marathon day four. I'm back in the pool doing 2.4 miles swim with him. And um, wow. so it just, that, challenge kicked me out of this funk that I'd been in. And mm -hmm. after a couple of weeks, like I had built some more muscle, like my <clears throat> core was stronger and I, it just started to help ease me out of this back issue that I'd had. So we hit like day 24, I believe. And James is like running along. He's like, dude, you've been here so many times. Like, when are you going to come out and do a full Ironman with me? And I'm like, I don't know. He's like, do you bike? I'm like, yeah, I haven't for like two years, but I do know how to bike. And he's like, okay, well, how about you come tomorrow and do it? And I was like, ah, no, I don't, I have work. I can't come do the full thing. He's like, okay, well, how about the next day? And it hit me. I'm like, I'm not going to get out of this thing. And he's just going to pester <laughs> me till I do it. So two days later, I showed up, swam with him, biked the 112 miles, ran the marathon. And I was just like, holy cow. I just did a full Ironman with this dude. And that's incredible. Over the course of the next three months, I did 18 full Ironmans with him. I ran 76 oh marathons gosh. and I swam all two, 100 2.4 mile swims with him. Oh my goodness. And it was amazing to look back. And I want people to understand that like, I'm some regular dude. I am 40 year, over 40 years old now mm -hmm. and I have no special God-given talents. So I want people to understand that we have so much more in us than we mm -hmm. realize. And I look back to the year before the two years before when I took an entire year to complete a single Ironman and train for it mm -hmm. and to build that confidence to feel like I could do it. Mm -hmm. And then to get into that challenge with him and some of those 18 full Ironmans that I did within that three month span, some of them were back to back to back. So I do like mm -hmm. three days in a row and we have so much more in us than hmm. we realize. And it's all about finding that potential. And once we realize that potential, when we hit dark moments, whether it's in yeah. life or it's in races, we can lean on that. And that hmm. helps us so that we can realize that, okay, we might be having a down day, but we have so much more potential. Don't waste it. Hmm. Can you take me into a moment um, in a race, and I, I imagine it happened in Cocodona or any number of your hundred milers where you're contemplating quitting, like you are, you're seriously entertaining it and you, then you don't do it. You don't quit and you keep going. Yeah. Do I, you have, is there any particular moment that comes to mind and in, in insight that you can give me and help me for when I'm, I encounter that on April 13th at Zion? Yeah. So let me say a couple of things before that, because I have multiple examples of that, that I'll share. <laughs> but I think it's important to understand that late rates, let's late race survival mm -hmm. isn't one during those dark moments. Hmm. It's one before the race even happens. And, hmm. wow. and maybe not even the race being one, but having a successful completion of that race happens before the race starts. Oh, that's good. When I coach people, part of it um, is with nutrition and I teach them the same principle. I've heard it from someone else. This is not my quote, but I use it. 
that healthy eating is not one in the kitchen when you're like hungry and trying to figure out what meal you're going to prep. It's one at the grocery store. So at the Mm -hmm. grocery store, you choose Mm -hmm. those healthy foods. If the unhealthy candy and crackers and chips aren't in that pantry, you're not going to go there to get them. Like there, it's not even an option at that point. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think pre-decisional commitment in uh, races is huge. Like Wow. It, it's amazing what it can do for you. So I'll, like, I'll go like to a, don't put quit in the pantry. Don't, don't bring it home from the grocery store. Don't put quit in the pantry. For sure. <laughs> like I'll give you an example, uh, multiple examples, but the first one I'll give you is Antelope Canyon 100. I did that race as a training race for Cocodona 250 this past uh, spring. Yeah. And, um, I decided I was going to go out and do it. And I was going to uh, try to get a sub 24. It seemed like a relatively easy course. I was excited about it as a beautiful course. I think there was only yeah. a, like 45, 4,800 feet of elevation gain. So compared to some of the other hundred milers, it's, it's not as steep. Mm-hmm. So I got in there we got down there and within the first uh, three miles, it starts to rain the rain did not let up until I crossed the finish line. No way. It pounded us and it wasn't just a drizzle. There would be times where it just poured buckets. And I was surprised they, they kept the race going because we were running through slot canyons and other things that when me as a hiker that I, on the non running side of me that I like to rock climb and I like to repel and and canyoneer, I was thinking, Mm -hmm. I don't know if they want us in here, but anyway, it turned out fine. We were safe. But it was insane because people were blistering. It was, it was muddy. It was rainy. And I remember getting to the 50 mile, uh, I mean, the 40 mile point. And that's where you hit the page rim trail and the hundred milers do six, 10 mile loops to finish out the race up there on the page rim trail. (laughs) And I remember getting up there and the aid station worker just said, okay, you made it here. The page rim trail is like a nice butter trail. Like you're just going to fly. So you've hit the hard stuff because we've been going through sand and it's mm-hmm. hard to run in that deep sand. And there was a lot of it in, yes. in the beginning of that race. So your ankles are just messed up at that point. And so I thought, okay, good. I'm glad to be on hard dirt and on this loop where we're just going to go around in circles for a couple of 10 mile laps. And anyway, I start going down. I'm not even like a third of a mile out of the aid station. And it was pretty good at that point. It was a wet trail, but pretty hard packed. And then it hit and it was just this clay mud that was ankle deep. Nearly every step I took. And that stuff accumulates quite a bit on your shoes and running with weights. Yeah. It was like sticking to the bottom of our shoe and then my foot would sink in and I'd try to pull it out. And mm. my shoe would almost suck off with every step. So I had to stop. Yes. And oh my gosh. I tied my shoes so tight that it was like cutting off circulation so they wouldn't pop off. And I was thinking, we have 60 miles of this. <laughs> and I'm soaked. Like, so I go yeah. around the first loop and we come into this aid station and it's like more than ankle deep. And they'd set up these like wooden, like, uh, crate things that we could just step on. So we wouldn't have to step in the mud, but they were sinking in the mud and I get around that first loop and I was just miserable. And my crew was there and they're like, all right, do you want to change shoes? I'm like, yeah, maybe. And so I changed my shoes and we get going again on the the next loop. And within the third mile, I'm ankle deep again and it it didn't even Mm. matter. And so Mm. I remember going around that first loop though. And we crossed this, river crossing that was like knee deep and i get back and i'm the aid station workers like how are you doing just like cheering i'm like dude you are full of crap this trail sucks and <laughs> that river crossing was insane like i didn't know there was a river crossing he's ah there's no river crossing and i'm like oh there was and oh, so yeah, there's just so much rain that it was just all pouring wow. down causing this river and this wash and another runner came in there yeah there's a river out there and so it was just crazy conditions so I'm going to back up now and tell you Mm -hmm. about somebody I met during that race earlier on before I got to that point. 
So running along, I like to chat with people, especially if I see someone struggling, I want to try to uplift them as I'm going by, not just like a, Hey, I'm going past you. Good job, man. But like, I'll actually (laughs) like sit back with them for a little bit and run, I don't know, a couple of minutes with them to be like, Hey, you've been taking your salt. Like you a good man. Like, do you have anything that you need that I have and try to do anything to help them? Because that's Mm -hmm. what I love about ultra running over any other sport is people have done that to me. I'm reciprocating it because I am in there to see people successful and and grow and and just complete these things. So yeah, everybody's working through some goal. And though the only goal we all have in common is we're trying to finish. That's the least, almost the least valuable goal that a lot of us are working through in our heads is that finish line. So to be there with someone to help them on that journey, to give them what they're to propel them forward. I think that's such a gift for sure. And so I meet this guy running along with him. He's kind of struggling, but um, he's from somewhere from back East. I can't remember. I think it's Ohio. And um, he's like, no, I'm good. I don't need anything. And he's like, is this your first hundred? I'm like, no. I'm like, is it yours? He said, yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I, I really want to complete a hundred mile race. It's a big goal of mine. So as we got to know each other a little better, he mentioned, you know what though, but once I get to the 50 mile mark, I guess I'll have to decide how I'm feeling. And I said, why is that? And he said, oh, well, this race, if you do at least 50 miles, then there's an option that you can just drop out and they'll give you the 50 miler medal. So you'll just kind of like yeah. bump down and you successfully completed. You don't f- take the DNF. Yeah. Correct. And that boggled my mind because <laughs> I'm like, that thought has never crossed my mind. Even if I knew about that option. Hmm. that would not be an option. I would take that a wasn't D- crossing your mind. hundred percent. I would take a DNF over dropping down to the 50 because I was there for the hundred miler. And yeah. I don't, I don't know if you've heard this expression, but there's the expression of burn the boats. And oh, yeah. so I know that many people said it, but there was an occasion long ago when Julius Caesar and they were trying to take England and a lot of his men were freaked out and they're like, God, what are we doing here? And he said, if you want to take the island, you got to burn the boats. Mm -hmm. And before I approach a race, talking, going back to that pre-decisional commitment, I'm burning the boats. Like I'm going for a hundred miler. I'm not quitting Mm -hmm. this thing unless I have a major medical condition. And at that point, I'm probably not pulling myself off the course. Like the race is going to have to be like, no, you're not fit for this. You're out. And going back to that guy that I met, so we're running along, we're probably like mile 30 at that point when he's talking about this option. So I went ahead, I went and did my loop. And at that point I was about 10 miles ahead of him and I got back on hitting miles uh, 60 on Mm -hmm. at that aid station. He was sitting in that aid station and he was changing his shoes. And I just said, Hey, uh, go ahead and change your shoes. I changed mine. It did nothing. And he's just kind of laughing. And I said, it's pretty muddy out there. He's like, yeah, I know. I, I was just out there. And um, I said, keep it up, man. And I went to leave. And he's like, actually, I'm out. And I was like, what? Mm. And he's like, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm just going to take the 50-mile option today. It's, it's pretty crappy out there. I don't know if I can go uh, 50 more miles. Yeah. And so I just said, okay, see ya, and ran off. But for the next 10 miles, I it just brewing like, in my head. I'm like, mm. should I quit? Like, oh, no. And I'm just like oh, trying to push it out. So it was just like yeah, almost this infectious thing. I was able to push mm. it out, but it did dawn on me that he probably made that decision halfway before the race even started. Yeah. And that's a dangerous yes. place to be. So I started that race and I said, I'm going for the hundred miler and I'm going Mm -hmm. to finish this thing. He probably approached it with, I'm going to go for the hundred miler, but if things go a little South, then I'm going to go for the 50 miler. And in the races that don't have that option, I think a lot of people go into it with that same attitude, but -hmm. without like the more glamorous 50 mile option, they just say, you know what? I'm going to go out there and give it my best but if it starts to get pretty bad and things go south, then I'll just DNF and then I'll try again later. Yeah. And you can't go there. You need mm. to 
commit, have that pre-decisional commitment and not let quitting be in your pantry like you talked about. Yeah. So I ended up pushing through that race. It was extreme. That moment of pushing through though, that's what, that's what I'm curious. Like you were, you said you're able to push it out. I mean, I, I clearly see the mentality and burning the boats and, but it, it creeped in a little bit. How did you push it out? Did you say something to yourself? I mean, and like really, like really detailed. Are you talking out loud to yourself at this point? Are you, is it an internal dialogue? Did someone externally say something that encouraged you? So one concept that is huge is something that I tell a lot of my athletes. You've got mm. to stay within the mile. And mm. if you stay oh. within that mile, then you're going to be okay. Let's flash forward to Cocodona. I'll talk a little bit more about Cocodona in, in a minute. But if I'm at mile 170 and I'm thinking I still have 80 miles to go, that's soul crushing, soul crushing. Like you will want to quit. You'll get to that next aid station and think I still have 80 miles to go. That's insane. But if you stay within that mile and you just mm. next step mentality, next step mentality, that's what gets you through. So going back to that, I wasn't mm. thinking I still have four more laps, 40 more miles of this mud. I stayed within yeah. that mile and mm. was able to just, what do I need right now? Did I take my salt? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is my shoe coming off? No, I, I'm staying within that <laughs> mile. It, is that blister uh, getting bigger? Do I need to stop and put some moleskin on it. Next time I get to the aid station, what do I need to put in my pack? Is my battery life on my uh, headlamp going to last? Do I need to Mm -hmm. switch that out? All of those things are going through my head. Not, I have 40 more miles. This rain sucks. I can't believe there's Mm -hmm. so much mud. And you can't let your mind creep into those places. And This, again, going back to what I talked about earlier, the race is finished successfully before you even get to that starting line. Meaning, in your training, if you're out running on a butter trail on the Bonneville Shoreline Trail here with it's it's easy going or you get onto the road or you're running on a treadmill, you're putting yourself at such a disadvantage. I go out and seek those trails that have mud, that... I are in the winter there's snow and I, mm-hmm. this is kind of a funny side story, but I was just at Alice sporting goods buying some gear and uh, this cashier guy is like, ah, oh, dang, this is cool. He's like, too bad. You can't use it for a little while. And I said, why not? And he's like running season's over, man. And I said, Oh, there's no running season. It's always running season, bro. <laughs> so, yeah, you, that guy has no clue. We're, we're, I mean, even if there was such a thing, we've got a problem. There's no, there's no off season. For sure. And so anyway, I think it's so important that people seek out opportunities to intentionally make themselves uncomfortable. And mm-hmm. going back to the business that I've helped co-found, Go Crazy, that mm-hmm. that's our premise. We find yeah. those opportunities to make ourselves uncomfortable where other people are looking at us and saying, you're nuts. Like, why are you doing yeah. these things to yourself? But when you do that and you get in those moments of darkness, it's not yeah. new. Like it, yeah, it, it's not shocking. You don't become a victim and say, Oh, I'm poor me. I'm in the mud. I'm, I have a blister. It's I've been here before. We're good. All right. How many more miles do I have? Okay. 40. You're good. Okay. Let it go. Yeah. Now think, get back within the mile. Have I been up on my hydration and just like keep that in your mind, but this this is good. Let me tell you about this aha moment I'm I'm having right now with my own DNFs, my seven of eight at the hundred mile distance is I don't burn the ships because I'm leaving myself open. I'm saying, Hey, I'm not like, this is my hobby. I'm addicted to it, but it's my hobby. And if things get gnarly, I can, I, I mean, you can, it's so easy to pull the plug. It's so easy. Race directors have to have, I, I, I put on a small 50 K here in the foothills. We have to have an emergency extraction plan. <laughs> like there's a way out. Yeah. 
Yeah. Every race director has a way out, a way to get the runners out. They want runners to have ultimately have a good experience. So you want to quit, you can, you can do that. And so I leave that there. It's in my, it's always in my pantry. Um, using your analogy. So I feel like one this, this sort of aha moment for me right now is, is surrounding what you're saying about that of like, man, I, could I really go into this on April 13th like that and put, I I'm also, I also don't have a big ego, so I don't mind quitting. I don't mind the seven of eight. Some of my friends, you know, love to make fun of it, like in a fun way, not like in a jerk way, you know, you know, good friends, yeah. but, uh, it doesn't bother me. And one of my, my friend, Jeremy Cox, his advice on this one is put some ego into this one. Like he didn't use these words. These are my words. Like, Hey, have some pride in yourself. Like you can do this, put some ego into it. Like make that, make it matter. Don't just be like, uh, I can quit because they can take me out and it's easy. And the car's warm. My, the <clears throat> Matt Bergstrom, who's going to be my crew chief. The joke this time is he said, if I, if I DNF, he's not taking me home. <laughs> I'm going to sit in the car. We're not turning on the heater and you're staying until the cutoff of the end of the race, no matter what. So he said, that's awesome. You're not going to have comfort if you quit, (laughs) which I appreciate. So anyway, I love what you're saying. It's giving me this aha moment. I'm super interested to hear about Coca Dona because it's, it's a bucket list of a race for me that, or any of Candace Burt's races, uh, you know, destination trail, uh, how, how many times did you encounter something of this scale in Coca Dona? Oh, I cannot tell you how many. <laughs> I Cocodona, when I look back on it, it was by far the most ex- amazing endurance experience I've ever had in my life. But it was also one of the most difficult that I've ever had in my life. And what's the gain on that? Like, is it 60 plus thousand? Uh, it's it's mid 40s, I believe. It's, I th- it's around okay. 42,000, I think, actually. Okay. So it's, it's no walk in the park. You have moments of uh, just extreme everything. So I remember getting down to Phoenix where the starting line is. Mm-hmm. The day before, it was 103 degrees. So <laughs> it, that's already insane. Like I, I was just like, all right. I, and I, I prepared for everything. My, my crew still makes fun of me. Patrick Oburn was one of my pacers and crew and he just laughed. He was like, dude, you had like four duffel bags. Every time you came into an aid station, we we're just like digging through everything. But I had prepared for everything. I had like snow, rain, heat, whatever. So anyway, we get down there and uh, 103 degrees. I think it's just like over 100 on race day. So it was a little bit cooler. But I remember getting to the line, pumped up, uh, we start the race. You don't even make it a half mile and you come around this uh, little section where you leave this little dirt road and get onto a single track and right there pegged in the ground, it says 250 miles to go. <laughs> so <laughs> talk about like so good. The, the importance of pre-decisional commitment and yeah. like everyone's laughing about that, of course, but like you can't let that crap get in your head because you look at that and it's like, oh my gosh, it's like daunting. But at that point, everyone's like pumped up. We're all jogging along, running in this big line. There's just beautiful cacti everywhere that you can kind of see as the sun's coming up. And I remember we did river crossing within like the first three miles and some people are taking off their shoes. But for me, here's a pointer for other people because I was scared of water in ultra running before. And I would occasionally get some blisters, but man, there's like some foot lube stuff that I put it on my feet. If I'm running anything over like 50 miles and above. And what I just, it? it's just like, uh, the foot, maybe I'll get you the, it, I don't know. It's like gold bond foot, uh, really friction. Okay. Yeah. Send me the link. I'll put it in the show notes. Cause I'm, I'm, uh, I'm into this. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I'll just take it and I'll rub it. It's like a deodorant stick, but for like friction, I use it in triathlon as well. Okay. But okay. I, I rub it all over my feet in between all my toes. And if you encounter water, that stuff is very water resistant. And mm. I have not, not had a single blister through any single, uh, ultra race ever since I started to do it. Wow. And 
it's been a game changer. So a lot of people, we get to that river and they are taking off their shoes to and socks and walking across this and then putting it back on. The rest of us, me and a couple others, were just like, nope, trudge right through it, knowing that like we've we practiced to be okay. this. I've ran through rivers in my training. And mm-hmm. I know I'm not gonna get a blister because of the foot care that I've learned. And anyway, day one was mm-hmm. awesome. It started to heat up um, at mile 20 or so. They require you to ca- carry a gallon of water leaving like the eight mile aid station, which is heavy. Like to try and that jog, my goodness, jog with a gallon of water on you and all your other supplies. It was, it was beastly, but yeah. there's a lot of wisdom in it because when we were getting to mile 28 and we still weren't uh, at the aid station, there was a lot of heat and a it's lot a of us were, were getting yeah. low on the water. There was people at that point, you're starting to pass on the trail that are just like bowing out because heat exhaustion that, uh, first 50 K before you get to the first major aid station mm-hmm. has as much elevation gain as the speed goat 50 K oh, no. race <laughs> speed goat 50 K was my first, uh, ultra mar- ultra ever. Yeah. And yep. it blasted me. It was, that's a hard race, but Oh yeah. This first 50 yeah, K has 12,000 over 12,000 feet of climbing in it. In a 250 mile race. So like right I remember off- watching the coverage year one and they were, uh, the cameras were on Michael Versteeg who was in first place. And he was like that first 50 K like I'm we're professionals. That was unbelievably hard. I can't, <laughs> I, I can't believe that it's the same as speed goat. Yeah. It, it was insanely hard. So I survive it. I drop down, you get a big downhill to the aid station. I get there and, and man, Cocodona knows how to run a race. I can tell you that much. Yeah. They had like smoothies yeah, right. down there and pulled pork sandwiches. So I like two of those, grabbed one for the road and uh, my crew got me going. I, I was off. That first night was really rough. And I forgot to tell you, there was one water station between the eight mile and the 31 mile, but it was packed in by donkeys on these old like oh, wow. plastic like water jugs. And so anyway, I had taken some of that water and I think it came back to bite me later because I don't know if the water was bad, but multiple people in the same uh, groups that we would keep leapfrogging each other started to have some GI issues. And I was one of them. Mm. And mm. I had GI issues for a day and a half and I don't, I don't want to give like too, too much information on here, but uh-huh. I would literally have seven or eight seconds. I'd get an urge and it'd be like seven, six, it's gotta five. And it was just yeah. like, boom, off the trail. Hmm. And as many people, again, hopefully not TMI, but when that's happening, it leads to chafing, especially when you're out camping oh, yeah. or on the, the trail or whatever. Yeah. And that plagued me for the rest of the race. Mm. And to give you yeah. a, an idea of this, it's like that night was hard. Like no sleep. I didn't, I lay down for a nap. I just remember staggering. I'd have to le- rely on my poles and there was still a lot of climbing and some rough trail. And I was having the GI issues. I finally get over to one of the, an aid station, which is like this Baptist church, like kids camp thing up in the mm-hmm. woods. And I'm thinking, finally, there's going to be a toilet where I can have, actually have some dignity and like whatever. <laughs> but I, I run into this camp and I open the door and it's this big open area and they're like cooking breakfast in there. And there's like runners laying all over the ground, just like sleeping. And I'm like, hey, do you have a bathroom? And he's like, yeah, it's around the back. So I go around the back and it's a Home Depot bucket okay. with crap all over the edge of it and all over the ground yeah. and like toilet paper hanging out of it. And I was like, you gotta be kidding me. Like no, that was like no a dignity for you yet. <laughs> like a punch in the gut. So I went and got a few pancakes and got back on the road and, and dealt with that uh, chafing for a long time. But I, I think the hardest part, and this was a mistake <clears throat> of mine. I didn't sleep enough. Like total during the entire Cocodona, I slept 35 total minutes and that led to major. What was your time? Um, 
108 hours, I think. And 30 minutes, 30 <laughs> minutes of sleep in there. And it, it was foolish. Like I've talked to like some other people like Mike McKnight and, and he was just kind of like, yeah. uh, that was a rookie mistake. I'm like, yeah, I know. But, um, anyway, that led to major hallucinations and mm-hmm. actually slowed me down because I was so tired and staggering to try and fight through this sleep deprivation that yeah. I didn't have the strength and ability to just like go out and like crank it for a little bit and then take a nap again. And I was having some crazy hallucinations where I was seeing things in every rock. Like I would see like the glare of a rock with the shadows and I'm like, Oh, somebody's face. Like, Oh, there's Bill Murray. And there's like all these other like people. (laughs) And I would get with my pacers and I would literally ask them, I'd be like, is there like this black wizard standing up against the tree with like some staff? And they're like, Nope. Let's like keep going. And like we jog off, (laughs) but (laughs) that's really, but I think one thing that helped me survive Cocodona was the fact that, and I approach a lot of my races like this. I like to try to negative split my races, meaning I go faster in the back half of the race than I do in the front half. And Mm -hmm. it's a delicate balance because you don't want to go out too slow, but a lot of people fell in ultra running because they go out too hot. Right. So like day one, it's just, everyone has adrenaline. It's just exciting. Everyone has energy. Like they've trained well for the race. And so you have that stamina, you have that strength and you're just like busting through that first day. But even on hundred milers, you got to be careful because a lot of people just shoot right out of the gate. Yeah. And the hardest part as a runner, that's not falling into that trap is to maintain out of that trap and just say, let them go. This is a tortoise in the hair type of scenario. And in so many cases by mile, like on Cogadona by like mile one twenty, I was passing people like crazy because Mm. I had played it safe. I hadn't just walked Mm. it all. Like I, but I maintained a, a good pace where I wasn't burning myself out and I would, slow down and make sure I was staying hydrated. I would eat. Yeah. I would, where I really lost it was sleep. And Mm -hmm. I went into it with the philosophy of, I'm just going to stay on my feet and keep going. Yeah. And that was the wrong philosophy, which again, we live, we learn as we go through the sport, but everything else I nailed it. And so as we got to the back half of it, I was able to negative split it and able to come in faster than I did. And I think that's something that people need to consider when they're running an ultra race is you've got to keep the concept of this is my race. This isn't that guy's race ahead of me or that lady's race. This is my race. And you focus on yourself. You don't base your pace off of everyone else. Yeah. And, it's really hard to do. It's easier said than done because absolutely. Yeah. There is that pride in some people and that level of competition of, I'm not going to let that guy beat me, but it's important to just stay within your own race. Yeah. The other thing that really helped me was pacers. And I think you've aligned yourself well with uh, your crew member that says, you know, if you don't finish, you're not getting comfort, man. It's not, not going to be comfortable for a while. <laughs> You've got to uh, pick the right people because yeah. I've had races in the past where I've had pacers just be on their own agenda and they'll leave. And I'm like, well, I haven't seen them for like five miles. And then they'll like come back and be like, oh, how are you doing? And it's like, well, I could have used your help back there, but we're good now. Wow. I've had uh, <laughs> situations where the person – has their like own agenda as well, where they're like trying to pull me faster. And I'm like, dude, like, I just want to slow down. And they're, they're just like, trying yeah. to, like, come on, keep going. And they're not communicating with me and saying, what do you need right now? And, and how yeah. can I help you? It's just this, I'm here to pull you. I've yeah. also had pacers that um, I've had to help. And it's like, you should be helping me. And now I'm the one giving you food and I'm the one like, <laughs> trying to like <laughs> keep you going. And so you've got to choose the right people. And, and yeah. those might not always be your best friends. It, 
you've got to choose people mm-hmm. that are going to communicate with you and understand you and understand your needs and know what to do in those moments where you are in a dark place because maybe you're in a dark place and they're chatting to you and you're just like in your head, shut up. Like you're making this worse. But then there's the other guy where it's like, I want to be distracted right now and you're not saying anything. And this is just awkward silence out in the mountains. Like say something, bro. So you need to like know the right people and bring them in at those times because they're going to play an instrumental role in what you do later. And I make sure I let the Pacers know that if I get into a conversation with you where I want to quit and I'm acting a little crazy, like you don't give in to that. I'm not going to quit this race. So if I get to that point, if I'm saying it, I'm it's nonsense. Disregard. I'm just hallucinating or something like just pull, pull me through and slap me and let's get going. Yep. And, and yeah, I've paced people. One guy, uh, he's hilarious. If he gets into that dark moment, he's tells me, yell in my face, tell me I'm a wuss. Like, this is all you got. And (laughs) then there's another person. She's like, if I get into that place, I need a hug. And then I need you to just say, come on and encourage me and give me those encouraging words. So everyone's different. You just got to find the right people because that's good. I'm, I'm in between those two people. When I'm in that space, I, I need my pacer and my crew to just protect me, like block everybody, like get everybody away from me and give me a second to work it out. I don't want to hug and I don't want to be yelled at. It's just like create space for me. And uh, yeah. Well, let's see. Last question going in here is, are you going back for Cocodona this year? Um, I'm not going back to Cocodona this okay. year. Well, I am okay. to, to pace. Oh, you are. So Uh, you're going to be there, but not suffer like some others might. Yeah. So it's going to be interesting to see the other side of it. Yeah. What's your next big effort that that you're going for? Do you have anything on the calendar? So I kind of got skunked this year. I really would put all my eggs in one basket to get into Leadville 100. Didn't make the lottery. I have my name on the wait list for Moab 240, but it's not looking likely. So as I've contemplated all of this, I have thought, you know what, if I'm not going to get into these big races that were um, on my list, I am going to use this as a year that I'm terming as like a year to give back. And so I have about seven or eight uh, things on my schedule to go down and pace people that I've been coaching or people that are doing some of these big races. So I'm really excited to, to see that. But there's always other things. I, I'm doing Salt Flats 100 in May. Oh, cool. Uh, I have a goal to do all the Utah 100s, not in a single yeah. year, but eventually. And so sure. this this one fell into the, the timing of it all at, kind of as a, a training run between what I was hoping to get into. But there's other challenges that we do. Like a couple of years ago, we, we always go down and do rim to rim to rim in the Grand Canyon every year. Mm-hmm. And a couple of years ago, this was something that actually really – Prep me for Cocodona. We did what we term as R5. It was rim to rim to rim to rim to rim. Mm-hmm. And it ended up being 106 miles in the Grand Canyon. And again, going back to finding ways to prepare you for these big races, the R5 was something that was instrumental for me mentally finishing Cocodona because yeah. we got in that and it's a situation where we did the first uh, 50 miles and I remember getting out of the Canyon and we were there with other people and I pushed my pace a little too hard. It was an extremely hot day, but yeah. out, out on the rim is only 28 degrees. So it was cold up there and we got out and I remember my wife had said, make sure you text me going back in. And so I'm like trying to text her and my hands shaking and I'm like dropping my phone right. and I'm, had another pack already in the car that was kind of like a halfway aid station. I just switched my uh, shirt and put on the new pack. And there was someone that was uh, supposed to come down in with me and my friend that were trying to do this R five, the rest of them did an R three and they took off and someone new mm-hmm. came down to, to make sure we didn't like walk off a cliff or something. And <laughs> cause it was nighttime by that time. And uh, I remember them just saying, you don't need to do this. Like nobody cares. Like nobody's going to be at a finish line. <laughs> nobody's going to be clapping for you. 
Right. And, no belt buckle. Yeah. And my, my buddy that was doing it with me, he's kind of looking at me and he's got like this weird look in his eyes. Like, are we going to go back in? Because we still have over 50 more miles to do and we're already toasted. And this guy is just like, again, like in my ear, just like, don't do it, man. You don't need to. Nobody cares. It's, it doesn't matter. And I finally just had this thing click in me and I turned to him and I said, dude, it matters to me. I made a promise to myself that I was going to do this. And I respect that promise as much as I respect anybody else's opinion or whatever. And, and I just looked over and I'm like, John, get your pack on. We're going. And so I just started walking (laughs) down the Canyon like mindlessly. Cause if I thought about it, (laughs) I would have like not done it, but we just, again, staying in that mile, I was just like, I'm going to finish this thing and had blinders on. And we went through and it was one of the harder challenges I've done ever in my life. And Mm. again, it was one of those things that I don't need to do this. I'm not going to get a belt buckle, like you said. And, but completing that was a massive mental win. I bet. And so people don't need to do an R5, but go find your own massive wins that are going to carry you through later. Because I'm like, I would stay on my feet and through the night and did all that. And I was tired and we were still able to complete it. So yeah. I think that's important. And I my think friend Ryan is running uh, Zion with me and he's a former army ranger. And he was talking about what you said. And he just had a, he was just calling it stacking wins. Like you build those wins, you stack those wins and then you call on them, you know, and when you need them in those dark moments to remember that, and these are my words now, not his, but to, you know, to remember that you are able yeah. You can do it. Look at the look at this body of work you have behind you. You are able to keep going. I love it. That that's that's such wisdom there. Yeah. Hey man, that's a great note to wrap up on too. I, I can't thank you enough for giving me your time today. And there's a lot of gold here. To be honest, because this podcast is my own selfish pursuit for wisdom and then passing it on to the Borderlands audience. I'm, I'll be, I listen to all these podcasts because I'm trying to retain, I'm trying to make lists for going into my hundred. I look forward to listening to this podcast again with a, with a pad and pencil because there was some real gold in here. So I, I really, I thank you for your wisdom, your, your generosity in the sport, your, your desire to be an inspiration. You certainly are to me and I know many others. So thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. I look forward to seeing you compete in Zion. I'll be down there as well. Yeah. Oh, right on. Okay. See you then. Oh, my God.